Good morning, TCC. We are the Zhou family. My name is Mveli, my daughter Natai, and my son Kanya, and then my husband who's out of the country at the moment. We've been attending TCC for just over a year right now. And our scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, verses 1 to 6. Matthew chapter 18, 1 to 6, and Matthew chapter 19, verses 13 to 15. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who, then, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed a child among them. And he said, Truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes children will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name will come see me. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Chapter 19. Then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. The word of the Lord. Thank you so much, Sao family. Thank you for reading that for us. Well, good morning. I'm probably not who you were expecting to see this morning. My name is Jenna Hyron. I'm your director of family ministries. And usually I am upstairs with all of our kids in the morning. As many of you know, I am in my third year of my Master's of Divinity with Kairos University, is affiliated with Taylor Seminary here in the city, and I'm currently fulfilling my outcome for preaching and gospel proclamation. Well, church family, there comes a time in every young pastor's life where they need to give their very first ever sermon to a congregation. So this morning, I'm inviting you into that experience with me. TCC, you have all been very gracious and generous with me on my journey into ministry, and so I take this privilege very seriously. So let's open with just a word of prayer this morning. Pray with me. Lord, thank you for gathering us together this morning. Thank you that you delight to work in and through us. Open our hearts to receive what you have planned for us today. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, so what do you want to be when you grow up? Has anyone asked you that recently? Well, I surveyed our kids upstairs and friends. The results are in. Let me read them to you. There were four dump trucks. Very popular option. Six doctors. Of what? I asked one of the girls. Of people, obviously. There was a dentist who throws up at the sight of blood, so a dentist with no blood involved, okay? 
a duck, a dinosaur. There were several teachers, two pastors, a hairstylist, but who only does the color blue, a bioengineer, an astronaut, two fortune tellers to which caused great alarm, and so they wanted to clarify the good kind, not the kind in the Bible who are bad, okay? And my personal favorite, she wants to grow up to be the Queen of England, but specifically, specifically, with more jewelry than our late queen, okay? Well, I wanted to grow up to be a farmer, The kind of farmer who owns a great big red barn, has lots of animals, and lives far outside the city. You know what I didn't guess? I didn't guess that I would be a homeschool mom of two, getting my master's in my 30s while leading a kid's worship service every Sunday. That wasn't on my list. Well, regardless of what your answer is, I bet you had some really high hopes as a kid. I bet you shone and your face lit up when you answered that question. Because I think somehow we've managed to create this illusion that our lives are racing towards something that makes childhood seem somewhat irrelevant in comparison. It's just a phase of life that we have to endure. In 2020, the Disney animated movie Tangled resurrected the Rapunzel story with her famous opening song, When Will My Life Begin? A young woman trapped in a tower waiting for the day she's released to go out and live the life she always dreamed of. Children of all ages flocked to theaters, and with tremendous success, they resonated with the question of Rapunzel, when will my life begin? So when you consider this question, what do you want to be when you grow up? What side of that question are you sitting on? I know we have a room full of junior and senior high and young adults, And maybe you can resonate with sitting on the side of that question that's full of optimism, hope, excitement. Something amazing is just around the corner. And there's also the other side of that question, isn't there? It's the side where people stop asking us what we want to be. Maybe you haven't been asked that question in a while, maybe even a few decades. And maybe it brings you a bit of a laugh to think about what you envisioned growing up to be and what it actually is. My youngest daughter summed it up really well. I asked her right after her birthday, I said, Natalie, what does it feel like to be five? And she looked at me with those big blue eyes and a frown on her face, and she said, it feels a lot like being four. You see... Culture often makes us feel like growing up is this destination. Our cultural perspective is that childhood is really just a short-lived problem that everyone has to go through. And whatever happens, children are resilient. We can just fix it on the other side when they're all grown up. For now, they need to simply wait. And we simply need to find a space for them so that we can endure the process. Okay, the problem is that this cultural narrative, it seeps into our church life. It erodes our ability to experience the fullness of the body of Christ, the church. 
I believe that the church is and has always meant to be a multi-generational community. So this means that childhood is both intentional and a necessary part of our discipleship process. This last few weeks, we've been talking about our identity as the church, and one commonly understood part of that identity is that we, the church, are a community of difference. And age is one of those things that brings differences among us. Age impacts the way we dress, the way we talk, the way we move, the way we eat, the way we worship, the way we recreation, It impacts the way we smell. My kids have a bath at least every Saturday. I think the best and most widely used approach that we employ to deal with generational differences is what I have termed the separate space solution. Okay, The separate space solution is common, and most of the time it works great. It's exactly what it sounds like. We take people of similar age who are more likely to look and sound similar, and we put them in their own separate space. Ta-da! This works great most of the time. Sunday school, kids' worship is a great example of the separate space solution. Youth group, young adults group, seniors or young at heart groups— These are all examples of the separate space solution for dealing with some of our generational differences. But this separate space solution, it has limitations, doesn't it? And if we aren't careful, this solution will mix with our cultural narrative about childhood, and it can subtly deform our understanding of lifelong discipleship. If we mix our theology of discipleship with the cultural narrative, we might be tempted to wrongly believe that God is not interested in investing in our lives if we are under a certain age or if we're over a certain age. Have you ever been tempted to believe that God is not interested in a deep and transformational relationship with you because you are the wrong age? So today I want to focus on emphasizing a right gospel view of childhood discipleship and the value that our children bring to our church body. I know that we are all bombarded by the narratives of our world that children are not as valuable as adults, that true discipleship will start when they grow up. This same narrative existed in the Mediterranean life as well, but Jesus' words and his actions stood in stark contrast to this cultural reality. So this morning, let's immerse ourselves in the truth of what Jesus said and did with children so that we can better align our words and behaviors with those of Christ. And I believe that when we do that— will strengthen our church community across generations. So, to begin, we must understand that childhood is intentional. 
In Genesis chapter 1, we're introduced to a perfect creator who designs a perfect creation. And every living species is designed with a life cycle that matures over time. We have to take notice of these patterns in creation. Seeds turn into seedlings that leaf, then flower, then fruit, and then reseed. Insects go through a process of metamorphosis, each stage of their life completely unique to the last. We can learn about our creator by taking notice of the patterns by which he creates. We see that God is not in a hurry. We see that the process of change over time is perfectly intentional. He's designed both the caterpillar and the butterfly. Have you ever assumed that God prefers the butterfly over the caterpillar, just because we often do? People, too, endure constant change right from birth, each phase of life, beautiful and unique. God perfectly designed Adam and Eve in his image and likeness, it says in verse 26 and 27. And in verse 31, he saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was good. Every stage of life, the whole life of a person was good. God intended each stage of life to take place. So it makes sense that Christ does not appear as a fully formed adult man, but rather humbly as a newborn baby lying in a manger. You see, we celebrate the birth of Jesus every year, but I think rarely do we think of Christ actually growing up. Jesus, our Lord, had a childhood on earth too. In Luke chapter 2, verse 52, speaking of Jesus' growing up, it says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with man. Childhood is something that we all have in common. It's a stage of life that God intended us to walk through. So turn with me now. We're going to go to chapter 18, Matthew chapter 18. And let's remind ourselves of how Christ viewed children within his kingdom. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. So in Matthew chapter 18, we find ourselves in the middle of what was likely a heated discussion among the disciples. Leading up to this opening question in chapter 18, we should briefly look at what has just taken place in chapter 17. Warren Worsby rightly labels chapter 17, the king's glory. Okay, so here we start out with the transfiguration. Jesus takes his three buddies. Do you remember who they are? Peter, James, John. They go to the top of the mountain, and they see him transfigured before their eyes. And all of a sudden, he's standing on the mountain talking to Moses and Elijah. This was a very cool moment. Okay, probably made these three men feel pretty good about themselves, that they were the ones chosen to be on that mountain with Jesus. It doesn't stop there, okay? They come down the mountain, and Jesus drives out a demon that the disciples weren't able to, and then he wraps up the chapter by asking Peter to draw his temple tax out of a fish's mouth. So needless to say, these disciples are feeling pretty good about themselves. And so fast forward into our scene in chapter 18. Let's read it together. At that time... 
the disciples came to Jesus, probably feeling pretty good about themselves, and they asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Okay, watch what Jesus does here. He calls a little child to him, and he placed the child among them, and he said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You see, Jesus knew exactly what the disciples wanted to hear. But rather than indulge them in their own ego, Jesus moves right past them to call a child into their midst. Jesus tells us that children are the example of humility that the kingdom of heaven requires. See, we need children among us here in our church body. So we remember what it looks like to be humble. So we remember ourselves before we were asked to go up the mountain. Do you think this child felt deserving that Jesus would call him or her to his side while he was speaking to his disciples? No! No, he likely was surprised. He felt out of place by the privilege. The fact that Jesus even addressed him would have been astounding, both to the child and to those around him. What would that child have been doing before Jesus spoke to him? Was he sitting quietly and paying attention? I doubt it. I work with kids a lot. When I picture this scene, I picture him chasing a ball around with his friends. Okay, and then Jesus says, hey, would you, uh, would you come over here for just a minute? And he goes, oh, sorry, and comes and stands there. Now, that's not in the text. That's just what I'm picturing, okay? But was his child, was this child ready for the Son of God to draw him to his side? Probably not. This would have been a wonderfully humbling moment for our disciples. You see, children are the example of humility that the kingdom of heaven requires. So now turn with me. We're going to go a page over. We're going to look at chapter 19. So Jesus is teaching here. And in the early verses of chapter 19, we see Jesus crossing the river and a huge crowd is following him. Verse 2, if we were upstairs, I would say, take your finger, put it on verse 2. Verse 2 says that he healed them. Okay, so Jesus is healing a crowd. Imagine how messy that would be. Okay, what would that feel like to be part of that crowd? Many people have just been miraculously healed. Now, we move into the next phase. Jesus pulls himself away, and now he's giving teaching to some Pharisees. Pharisees are trying to trick him now. They're asking him very pointed questions about marriage and divorce to try and trick Jesus into saying something that's against the Torah. Of course, Jesus passes the test. Okay, so these are, this is a pretty big day so far. So now here, imagine at the end of this, These people are trying to bring their children to Jesus, and the disciples wanted to stop them. Wouldn't you? Imagine the people who would have been there. Imagine the people present. I imagine this scene could actually look something very much like a very long modern day, okay? 
Have you ever been having a really meaningful conversation with a group of adults to be interrupted by children who want your attention? Has that ever happened to you? Can't imagine. How rude. How disrespectful. Why, after all of this, would Jesus want to see the children rather than continue speaking with the adults? So the disciples' behavior here was actually perfectly culturally appropriate. Anna Case Winters comments that Mediterranean culture children were without status or power and were on the margins of social and religious life. They could not participate in religious services at all until the age of 12. That was considered adulthood, all the 12-year-olds in the room. But even then, it was only the men. Sorry, girls. Okay. But what does Jesus do? Jesus places his hands on the children to pray for them. And he said, the kingdom of heaven belongs to people like them. Jesus is giving us the picture here of a new type of community. By physically touching these children, he's taking them from being valueless to being precious. This new community belongs to these children. It belongs to those with no status. It belongs to those who are too young to really understand, to work, or to actively contribute. These children would have been too young to serve on the brunch team, to usher in the aisles, or even to play in the band. But Jesus tells us that children are not only acceptable in our community, but that they have status in the kingdom. So this should feel somewhat shocking for us, okay? It would have been shocking for the community at the time. It's tempting to want to explain this situation and Jesus' behavior by claiming that it's just a metaphor that's taking place. We might actually be tempted to assume the metaphor taking place is that Jesus isn't actually talking about children. He's really talking about adults who have humble hearts. But I don't think that we can erase the actual circumstances that are taking place in this scene. Jesus isn't just talking about children. Jesus is actually talking with them, surrounded by them, and he's touching them. You see, if your childhood brings back memories of feeling unwanted, unloved, unvalued, Jesus' words and actions stand in stark contrast to this. See, you have been loved and chosen and called by Jesus long before you were of age. No matter the value that the adults in your life assigned to you, I believe Jesus would have called you to his side He would have laid hands on you, and he would have prayed over you. And maybe you're like me. Maybe somewhere along the lines of life, you've been confused about where your discipleship journey actually started. Maybe it was a milestone that took place at a camp or a Sunday school or a conference or an event. You prayed a prayer, and you became a Christian. 
Well, recently within the last year, I had a mentor ask me to go back in my life and think about the very, very first encounter I ever had with God. I told her about my baptism. She told me to go back further. So I told her about my camp experiences. She told me to go back further. And I told her that was it. That was the beginning. She told me to go back further. Eventually, I came to a memory of an old, dingy church basement. I was sitting in the dark, and I wasn't old enough to read yet, okay? I have a memory of staring at a Sunday school poster with the Lord's Prayer on it, and I remember God whispering my name as I struggled to piece together the words on that poster, I remember making this small childhood commitment in the dark of that space to try to come back and reread that prayer later. I didn't articulate my faith for many, many years after that experience, but I understand now that God was doing a work in my life long before I understood that he was even there. You see, our journey with God sometimes begins before our subconscious is able to articulate what's happening. The truth is that God knows us even before we know him. I know I have this great privilege of being upstairs with our kids every week. I hear about these experiences that they're having that they don't understand are part of their spiritual formation. They're experiencing God before they can articulate it or interpret it. You see, when Jesus brought these children to his side, they likely had no idea that the God of the universe was sitting among them. But I believe in that moment when they received his prayer, that would change their lives forever. Jesus delights in lifelong spiritual formation. And God can intercept every stage of our lives. Finally, the last place I want to take us in Scripture this morning is in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Turn with me to 1 Timothy. Timothy was a young pastor. He was trained by Paul and sent off on a mission to correct some religious leaders who were hurting new Christian churches with their wrong teaching. Paul trained up Timothy and set his ministry in motion. Paul knew Timothy would be working with both Jew and Gentile churches, and he even went so far as having Timothy circumcised. Not for Timothy's sake, but for the sake of the churches that Timothy would be ministering with. Paul didn't want anything to offend these young churches, and Paul used his experience of working with these churches to help Timothy. Paul loved Timothy and regarded him as one of his closest companions. I love when Warren Worsby asks the question, he makes the comment. He says, I wonder if Timothy was the son that Paul never had. 1 Timothy 1-2 opens with, to Timothy my true child in the faith. Isn't that beautiful? 
See, Paul didn't question the giftedness of Timothy when he set him off to lead the church in Ephesus. He gave him strong lessons and encourages Timothy by saying in chapter 4, verse 12, let, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. See, Paul is setting the example here that age is not the qualifier of Timothy's calling. Paul believes and affirms Timothy's gifts and his leadership ability. Paul can see past age as a barrier in order to see the common mission ahead. The church in Ephesus needed help and it needed leadership. And Timothy, regardless of age, was going to go out there and do the job. See, the youth in our church remind us that our mission is not complete. And the youth and the children of our church will be the ones who will carry on the work. You see, both Paul and Timothy were on the field doing what God had called them to do. And their tasks looked different because of their age and experience. But the mission was the same. Do you see our youth living out the mission that God has called us to do? Do you see them as co-laborers in Christ? We need to remember that God's mission is not the same thing as an earthly occupation. It's not something that requires human qualifications. You aren't automatically promoted over time. And you can't assume that retirement is just around the corner. Church is not something that we participate in for a short season of our life while we are qualified to do so. To be the church is a lifelong commitment. No matter your age today, you are contributing to the health of this church body. Paul understood that Timothy could contribute and that age wasn't the qualifier. And when Paul trained up Timothy, it wasn't so Paul could hand off his role, but rather so they could co-labor together for the sake of the gospel. The young leaders of this church, they need seasoned mentors to labor alongside them. So to close this morning, we have a responsibility to recognize the difference in our community and to receive and to celebrate them. So I have three things for us to consider. I want you to be aware, to be willing, and to be open. Let's be aware of the separate space solution. The separate space solution has great application in certain circumstances. It helps us to put like people together and makes us feel comfortable and welcome. But remember the limitations. Are you intentionally putting yourself into situations where you are around people of other generations? It takes courage. But we will experience the fullness of this community when we're willing to cross generational lines. Be willing to be vulnerable. Age impacts a lot. The way we dress, the way we talk, the way we eat. Are you willing to be among people who will see you as different? Or are you waiting for a separate space solution so that you can be around people who look and act and dress just like you? It takes vulnerability to insert ourselves into places 
where we feel like we're different. And lastly, be open to learn new things. Friends, I don't need to tell you that generations see things differently. I sat down with a young man the other day who opened with the statement, TikTok is my life. I've only had a couple of, yeah, see, the young people are smiling at me. They're la- actually, they're laughing at me. It's fine. I've only had a handful of interactions with that platform. So it took me a moment to even muster a question that would be worthwhile answering. But one question led to another. Friends, I love learning from our kids upstairs. Every week I have conversations about things that I know nothing about. I do not understand what Minecraft is or what Fortnite is, okay? But those things matter. They matter to our youth and so they matter to me. What are you willing to learn about or what are you willing to teach someone else? One of our nine-year-olds upstairs just got introduced to pickleball by her grandparents and she loves it. What are you willing to teach someone else? So I don't know how this sits with you today. My prayer is that this church will be known for its love across generations. I pray that we will be people who acknowledge that children are the example of humility and our youth are the future of our church. We can both invest in and learn from one another if we are willing to cross generational lines in order to see one another as significant in the kingdom. So I just want to close us this morning with a prayer. And friends, if you have a Timothy sitting close by you, If you have a young person who is within reach of you, a youth or a child who's in the room with us today, I would just encourage you to lay a hand on their shoulder as we pray this prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for our childhood where we experience the humility that you desire Thank you that we have children here at TCC who have value in your kingdom. Please, Lord, help us to create a community that crosses generational lines so we can experience the fullness of your church. Help us to learn from our children and help us to invest in them. Lord, would you continue your work at TCC for generations to come? In Jesus we pray. Amen.